Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, your host. In today's episode, I am speaking with Elliot Fintischel, author of Zen City, which is his second book. Elliot is also a performance artist, a professional mime who has been a Nebula Award nominee, and he's also received various fellowships, including one from the National Endowment for the Arts for his solo performance work. Elliot, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Rob. I can only imagine that you've had a, a fascinating career trajectory, and I'm super <laughs> curious to hear how you got into into performing and how you evolved from being a mime, a, a solo performance artist, into writing science fiction. Well, it's funny. It, it really is all connected because I was driven by dire spiritual necessity, you might say, for, for which read uh, depression anxiety, angst, and so on, to join a Zen center up in Rochester, New York. There was a big Zen center there. And that's where you're from, right, Rochester? Right, right, my hometown, right across the street from where I was living. I, I saw this parade always in the pre-dawn hours of these these people in these dun-brown <laughs> clothes going in and coming out. And uh, when I went to uh, examine what was going on, I found out that they were Zen students. There was a guy named uh, Philip Kaplow there who's kind of famous in the Zen world for having written a book called Three Pillars of Zen. And so I went to uh, one of his talks, um, and uh, actually I, I was, can I say this without suffering prosecution, uh, was taking LSD in those days. <laughs> and uh, Well, hopefully and the Philip statute Kaplow. of limitations is worn out. I, I, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know. <laughs> Philip Kaplow was giving a talk that was entitled, I think, Zen and Psychedelics or something like that. So uh, just like Paul on his way to stone the Christians, I was going to, to Philip Kaplow's lecture in order to give him a hard time and tell him all the things he didn't understand about acid. Uh, I was very disappointed that he didn't say anything I could disagree with. And I told him so as he went up the stairway away from the lecture hall. And uh, he looked out at me and half smiled the way they do and said, um, come back and try again. <laughs> and what so year, what year was this? Let's see. That would have been around 1973. And uh, eventually I became a member, a zealot, a true believer at the Zen Center of Rochester and worked for... Uh, was sitting day and night, honestly, um, many, many, many hours a day and living in a kind of a, a, um, a Zen ghetto uh, where, where, you know, eight people lived together in, a, in, a, in an apartment and just did menial labor. You moved from across the street from your apartment into, the, into a Zen apartment? Yeah, right. Eventually I did, yeah. And uh, we were all, all we wanted to do was, was to sit on our cushions and stare at mop boards and do Zen work pretty much 24-7. But the thing is that uh, 
in December came uh, a retreat every year that was the hardest one. In those days, uh, there were people in their robes staring uh, at the wall, and someone would walk up and down the aisles with a stick and would hit people on the shoulders to keep them awake or to encourage them. Mostly, I mean, people weren't really hurt by it, except that I, I with the soft skin on my shoulders, often uh, had to have moleskin put on to protect me. But after that December session, which was so hard, December retreat, there was always a New Year's celebration where people just let loose. And I was kind of the master ceremonies of that. And I got a reputation as a kind of stand-up comedian. And when a guy came from New York who had been an actor and a mime and had a mime studio in New York, Michael Henry was his name, uh, now a, a Zen priest in Denver, Uh, He opened up a mind studio and invited me to be part of it. So there I was, directly from the world of Zen into the world of of mime and performance. And it was my job to, uh, under a CEDA grant, a grant from uh, the United States government in New York State, to do children's theater outreach. I wrote children's plays and did performances for children and studied mime and mask work and puppetry and, and uh, related arts. So out of Zen came, came everything, came, the, came my career, the way I made a living. You've gone full circle. Your current book is mm-hmm. called Zen City. And as right. listeners will, will gather as the discussion continues, it, it draws heavily on your, your experience, obviously, with, uh, with Zen. That's right. Yeah, it does. At some point, you started also writing science fiction. Yeah, and that came because uh, I, the history of Zen is, has, has always been very tumultuous, and, and students break with teachers and start new lineages, and uh, they decry each other's traditions, and uh, that happened in Rochester as well. Uh, the Rochester Zen Center bifurcated, and I went off with one branch, and many people became disillusioned. And in the course of that chaos, I learned of a teacher in California, whom I subsequently visited, who was on this fantastic, beautiful hill, Sonoma Mountain. There was this grand Zen center on this grand mountain, a very beautiful place to be. And eventually, I moved there to the Zen center on Sonoma Mountain in California, uh, with my wife and small child at that time. And then being in California, severed from all my contacts for performance art and mime and so on, desperate to find some way of making a living while I was at that Zen Center, I did possibly the stupidest thing that a person could, could do in retrospect. I mean, you're a mime, right? And you try, and mime doesn't work anymore. So what do you do to make a living? become a writer, of course. And that's, that's what I thought to do. Uh, and miraculous to tell, uh, it worked. I started writing science fiction stories and sending them out and collecting rejection slips, hundreds, thousands. I used to paper my wall with them until after about a year, I started having stories accepted by Asimov's and, and Science Fiction Age and other uh, science fiction magazines. And did that give you enough money to actually live on? It gave me enough to be able to make the transition to California while I reestablished contacts for doing 
children's shows and and uh, other things and and some teaching. I started teaching at where I, I still teach actually at the Santa Rosa Junior College uh, Movement and Improvisation for Theater. But obviously, you must have been interested in science fiction. It's not like someone turns to that and says, "Wait, I just need a I need a fast and easy way to make a little money. Uh, <laughs> let me start trying to get some short stories published." Right. Yeah. Well, I always loved science fiction. It's true. I I, um, I was a big fan of, let's see, Alfred Bester, Theodore Sturgeon, Heinlein, of course, you know, sure, uh, the... Strangers in the Strange Land was like a Bible for us back in the day. Yeah, those are the stalwart classics. Absolutely. And Philip K. Dick, of course, by the way, who lived not far from where I live now. I, I, I've run across two or three women <laughs> just walking down the streets in Santa Rosa and Sonoma, who uh, told me that they were his mistress and, and lived with him. Wow. These were different women, I gather. <laughs> different women, yes. <laughs> All walking down the same street. No, no, no. Different streets. <laughs> I wonder if they would have recognized each other. That would have been a story. So then ever since, you've, been, you've integrated these two things, science fiction writing and uh, mime and performance. I've been doing all three, and yeah, and just piecing together a living, yeah. Let's talk about Zen City. I mean, do you continue to practice Zen, or in writing this book, were you drawing on your past experiences? I really was drawing on my past experiences because I'm no longer associated with, and haven't been for a long time, with any... Uh, spiritual institution, Zen included. Uh, I mean, once you learn, if you're serious about it, once you learn meditation, whether it's Zen or, or any other kind, if you're serious about it, though, though you may drop the forms, the meditation's always there. That zero point is crucial to me. It's important to me every day, every hour. But I no longer uh, chant or cross my legs or wear brown robes or do any of those ritual things that I did when I was a member of a Zen center. What, what does zero point refer to, actually? Well, let's see. There's lots of literature about that. Uh, zero point, the place between breathing in and breathing out. Um, the place where uh, you don't identify things as your own, even thoughts as your own. Uh, the place uh, outside the parentheses of your particular personality, where where you see things with the things themselves. It's, it's, I may be permitted to be a little poetic. Well, absolutely. And so it sounds like you've taken from your Zen practice. You perhaps have, you know, moved away from the the trappings, the actual uh, affiliation with Zen organization or temple, but. It sounds like you've taken away a, a solid foundation, uh, something you've learned and you apply to this day. I feel that that's true, yeah. But the other thing I've taken away, though, is, uh, is a suspicion, uh, a fear of um, the institutionalization of, of uh, those practices. I mean, I, I understand that it may be necessary. Uh, people say... People within the tradition say, well, it's necessary to have a container. Even people who believe uh, uh, that, it, that it's necessary to reject forms to, uh, to, to really be liberated, to be free inside oneself, people who say that it's necessary to reject forms, to be liberated in 
inside oneself nevertheless often say, but you need a container to convey that, that liberty from uh, across generations, from, from one person to another. And, and that's why there are set practices and rituals and chants and uniforms and so on. Well, let's talk about the book, because it sounds like you deal with some of those things in the book. And right. the book is really funny. It's it's poetic. You play with different writing styles. It's a little hard to capture, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you give it a shot. Why don't you just tell listeners you know, a little bit about the story? Just, just a basic, simple overview, and then we can discuss it more. You bet. See, uh, the future begins with a traffic jam. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I know Jonathan Lethem has, has, has written a story that in which life is frozen, city life is frozen in a traffic jam. But I tell you, I wrote this earlier than that. So I guess it's not so hard to imagine looking out at the street that someday the traffic jam could get so intense that things just stop. And so people lived in these, live in these trashed cars in the world of uh, the book, Zen City, uh, that they refer to as the, the Red Chevy Motel or the Econoline Van Hotel. And in this world, Zen, uh, enlightenment, is a city. And it becomes a, a city, an actual physical entity, through two processes, two mirror processes. One is called hypostatization which is a word I, I borrowed from theology or philosophy, um, where hy- to hypostatize means to take an idea and to make a thing out of it, to reify it. So imagine that there were a machine that could hypostatize, that could take ideas from your mind and, and make them into things, like the old science fiction movie, Forbidden Planet, but a little more abstract than that. And then the opposite which I call in the book uh, hypodining, which is to take a thing and to make it into an idea, to change it into something abstract. Through a combination of these processes, people are trying to get themselves into this city. Everybody aspires to, to enter the city. Nobody has a clear idea of what it is, but they all want that. And life outside the city has become really miserable. Most of your characters live on an exit ramp, I think. That's right, on, on the ramp. And the suburbs are, are strange uh, kind of hybrid places. It's, you know, I, I think of it as a kind of um, uh, zone defense in basketball. You know, in, in basketball, you can have a man-to-man defense where you're, you're defending against some particular person, or you can have a zone defense where you're in charge of a particular area of the court, and whoever enters that zone, becomes the one that you're fighting against. Well, in the suburbs, you become whatever zone you enter so that someone, uh, your mouth might become someone's washing machine and you find them putting nickels in your nose (laughs) to do their load of laundry. Or uh, you might find your your ear uh, trying to suck your nose because your ear has become a baby and your nose is uh, uh, the mother. Uh, so as you move through zones in the suburb, you become different things. You, your uh, uh, integrity as what you thought of as a person is being uh, changed. Uh, so what's being played with through, throughout this book, Zen City, is um, the limits of identifying things. Of, I'm trying to deconstruct this 
perceived reality, the, the conventional reality that we convince ourselves is the real one, and to get back to the roots of it. I mean, what does a, a young child experience the world as? Uh, to a young child, things aren't things. There's no such thing as things. If you watch a, a baby's eyes moving around, they don't fix on objects or even on people the way we do. They don't have categories of objects or people yet. And, and I'm assuming, for the sake of the fiction anyway, that that's more real than the reality of objects and things and people. Uh, and these, uh, these uh, uh, dwellers on the uh, off-ramp who are trying to get into the city have to go through this phase of uh, the dissolution of their conventional ideas of things in order to enter the city. So is it like making the the tenets of Zen and Buddhism, I suppose, and I'm certainly no expert. I mean, I have sat and I do I actually do try to meditate myself sometimes, and I, uh -huh. I do sometimes read books about Buddhism, so I think I have a, a sense of it, but it sounds like you're taking the precepts and making them physically real, like making them part of the fabric of the world of, of Zen City. It's not an abstract idea that one arrives at just merely sitting on a cushion meditating, but actually in this world, passing through the suburbs and into the city, these things are physically happening too and made made tangible where your ego, your sense of a unique self is is evaporating and you are ultimately and that seems to what seems to be what happens in the city, you merge into a one consciousness where everyone's kind of melting together and everyone's memories, even the sense of time disappears, past, present, future, becomes kind of this kaleidoscope, mosaic, I don't know, collage. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you've nailed it. Yeah, I, uh, that's so. I, I'm not the first one to try this, this strategy, by the way, of course. I mean, John Bunyan, was it, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, used the same technique. He took what is essentially a, a spiritual journey and he translated it into a, a physical journey um, uh, so that uh, one goes through a, a valley of doubt or uh, uh, vanity fair is a phrase that comes from uh, Pilgrim's Progress and it actually is a fair of uh, vain people. So in, in Zen City, all these ideas are things, are places, are actual physical circumstances. And the drama plays out with uh, uh, the human aspects of, of everyone's aspiration, apparently, to become enlightened. Because, you know, you go to a Zen center, or you go to a, a church, or any spiritual group, and no matter what's on the brochure, you bump up against people people who, who have their, their petty desires. Uh, I mean, you know, you go to sit in a Zen center, and uh, I've seen this happen where someone will walk in and, and up to their brown cushion and find a note on it, a love note from someone else who's a member of the Zen center. So human life does not stop at the doors of the Zen, though. It goes on, and there are petty uh, jealousies, uh, I'm more enlightened than that guy, or uh, in the Zen world, it would be, um, I'm farther along in my koans, my spiritual riddles than the other guy. And uh, well, Trumpa, the, the Tibetan teacher, wrote a book called um, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And that's exactly what he was talking about. He was pointing out uh, the fact that uh, 
You don't leave your human foibles behind when you put on Zen robes. My favorite characters in the book are the, uh, are they called the what do you gets? Yeah, the what do you gets. What are they actually? They're, they're discarded thoughts or emotions made physical. I mean, they're sort of grotesque, flying, little baby scorpion whatevers. I mean, I guess they take all kinds of shapes, but, you know, one is called tenacity, I guess, because his, his right. main um, attribute is, in fact, tenacity. But it's it seems like that I wasn't sure. Are those the the emotions and the sort of the, the things that people try to discard when one is moving into an, in, an enlightened state and they're sort of hovering around in this cave on the way to the city? That's right. Well, yes, they're in a cave. They're, they dwell in a cave, a system of grottos and underground tunnels and lost rivers that some people are trying to sneak through on their way to the city. Here's this uh, chamber full of what do you get? Again, going back to this idea of hypostatting and hypodining, making feelings and thoughts into physical objects and taking physical objects and making them into people and thoughts. In terms of the, the background of uh, the story that's unfolding in the book, the what he gets are the results of the initial experimentation with this hypostat and hypodyne process so that you would put together, for example, um, Weltschmerz and, and antipathy to uh, large groups and uh, um, genital crabs and get some physical creature who embodies those disparate qualities. Yeah, they're quite a scary lot. <laughs> yeah. And what do you want the takeaway to be for people? Because it seems kind of like a scary, it's certainly not the way enlightenment, I think, is billed, or at least in the in sort of passing cultural references, you know, the way it's understood to be this place of deep understanding. I mean, although that's what people are aspiring to, it's all, it seems like a, a much more, what would be, how would I describe it? I don't know, unpleasant place where, you know, everyone's, you know, bodily functions and everything's kind of mushed and squished together into one mm-hmm. kind of mucusy soup of both nightmare and pleasure, you know, but I don't know if it necessarily seems like a place once you've seen it, you'd actually want to I would want to go there. I guess I no, should just speak for myself. No, no, it, it, it's true. The, you know, the, the aspiration to be enlightened is certainly a noble quality in human beings. And, and I think it, it produces meaning among us in, in, a, in a wonderful way. But it, it's also corrupted. The, the minute you start treading the path, you defile it. And, and also Zen masters, well, of course, have have observed that uh, one, um, whatever a Zen master may be, mind you, one one such person said that uh, enlightenment was a, a nightmare. Another said that enlightenment was a shit stick. Uh, another said that uh, every time I say the word enlightenment, I want to wash my mouth out with soap. And the reason is just that the minute we fix our, our mind on it, uh, we defile it, we... we we make it something um, to achieve and something to compare ourselves with others by. So in the book, uh, you know, the nearer people get to the city, the nearer, the more they, they see that it's something disgusting, something rotting, because what they're seeing is the detritus of their own, their own psychological shadows in, 
people convince themselves that they're being spiritual. People convince themselves that their uh, goal is a spiritual goal, but we don't know what our goals are, and all too often they're revealed to be uh, less than noble. And that's my experience, not only among adherents of, of Zen and other spiritual practices, but especially among the teachers. I would be more confident of the good character of a, of a storekeeper, of a, of a butcher, than I would be of someone just knowing about them that they were a spiritual teacher. I would be more suspicious of the teacher than I would be of the butcher. Have you gotten any feedback from people who are of that world that you were once deeply a part of, the Zen, the Zen world? Uh, well, there are those who have a sense of humor, and there are those who have not, and they react accordingly. Um, yeah, some people are, are, are and will be, I'm sure, very offended uh, by the suggestion that there might be something dark about a spiritual tradition. And there are those, uh, as I mentioned, those uh, acknowledged Zen, quote, masters, unquote, who have said essentially the same thing that I'm saying in this book, that that there is a shadow uh, that, um, well, Lao Tzu says that the, the world is something so sacred, so fundamentally sacred that it's defiled by the slightest touch. And that's that's really the core of what uh, what Zen City is about. Although, because I'm a comedian, it's a comic book as well. Do you feel it's also a message just generally about religion, that the journey that people put themselves on as they aspire, if they are, you know, devoted to a, a doctrine and are particularly doctrinaire, that if you were to take those teachings literally, it might, and, and to as you have done, you know, really create a world where this becomes literally and physically true? It, it reaches, uh, there's some kind of absurd end point? Well, uh, the common Sutra is this old Hindu book by a guy named Vatsyayana, and it's the, the art of love. And in it, he has all these formulas for achieving union with the beloved. For example, you see a woman, a man sees a woman whom... He likes, and one of the techniques that Vatsyayana suggests is to admire the woman's dog, to get into a conversation. And he has more specific suggestions for every phase of the relationship, the lovemaking, getting into bed with the beloved, unclothing the beloved. And, And then he says in this book, the Kama Sutra, you will come to a certain point when passion takes over. And then you have to give up all the rules. You have to jettison the rules. It's the same, I think, that uh, Wittgenstein says at the end of his uh, book, the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, this famous book in in Western philosophy. He says it toward the end of that book. um, You climb this rope ladder up into a bunk, and then you don't leave the ladder hanging. You have to roll it up after you. But what happens in, in uh, spiritual traditions like Zen or Catholicism or any number of others that you can mention where there are robes and rules and holy books is that people begin to value the rope ladder, ladder <laughs> more than they value the bunk. Uh, they want their robes. They want their rituals. They want their uh, status in the organization. And as for enlightenment, 
well, that just becomes a, a sign of status. Whereas enlightenment, as we all understood it at the beginning when we were drawn toward it, is something that has no outward signs, that, that entitles one to no status. In fact, the, the, the Zen guy um, Hakuin, I think, always referred to uh, the true man of no status, the true man of no status. That was his idea of an enlightened person, a person of no status. You go into a Zen center and try to find one of those. No, you're more likely to find one in a butcher shop. Tell me how you have integrated these two parts of yourself. One part of you is a performance artist who, I imagine, in order to have the stamina, willingness, courage to stand on a stage, interact with an audience, it requires a certain amount of ego and in-your-face you know, bravado. And then there's this other part of you that's a writer who, in my experience as a writer, uh, likes to be kind of by himself and needs time alone and um, anonymously working away at your laptop, I imagine. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you describe it very well. It's it's funny. Lonely. I mean, writing is a very solitary pursuit, and performance is just the opposite of that. I'm damned if I can answer that question. I love them both. Uh, I love the communion of performance. My favorite moments on stage are the moments where uh, the audience and I, I know, are experiencing something exactly the same way at the same moment. And I know it because of uh, this feeling of silence or this, or the sensation of, of laughter. Uh, one can feel that, that one-pointedness is just wonderful. And I thank Zen training, by the way, for uh, allowing me to, to, uh, to find that more surely, uh, because it requires a kind of emptying out on stage. You have to empty yourself out uh, and become almost a projection of the audience. Um, as to writing, I mean, well, <laughs> you're a writer and you know this the same way I do, what, what uh, uh, pleasure there is, what euphoria there is in uh, surrendering yourself to the writing. Well, rewriting we can talk about another time, but, but the initial flow of writing is just, it's just wonderful. It's interesting, though, because in a performance, I imagine you do the same thing over and over again, and you get to relive right. it. But writing, you know, when you finally get it right and it's done, you're kind of letting it go. You're right. You're right. That's a that's a damn good question. That would that would be a good subject of uh, an essay or a meditation or a book. Uh, yeah, the difference between performance and writing. What's your show like, actually? Give a sense of what, I mean, I guess you've done many different kinds of shows, and it's often for, is it for kids? It's for young people, usually? My bread and butter has been performance for young people, but every couple of years, uh, I do a show for adult audiences. Uh, the most recent show I did was not really my own, but one, you know, uh, Wally Shawn's piece, The Fever? Yeah. It's a great monologue uh, in which, uh, among other things, you get to tell people about about some of the concepts of Marx's capital. But I, I did that. It's a, a monologue of about an hour and a half uh, for audiences all over the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, 
but uh, more typically I would do pieces that I, that I made myself. Some I've done shows of, uh, the poetry of Baudelaire with, um, music on the theremin. Uh, I've done, uh, Whitman. I once did for my solo show of that year, the entire book of, uh, revelation in the, the, uh, the King James translation from beginning to end, God help us. Wow. Okay. And bits of that are on YouTube. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about the journey to publication for Zen City. You ended up at zero books and uh, Doug Lane, Douglas Lane, he was a previous guest on the right. show uh, for his book, which I have right here, After the Saucers Landed. But how did you end up there? I know uh, he publishes largely, I think, uh, a lot of uh, nonfiction, you know, critiques of capitalism and books about art and philosophy and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, yeah, Douglas, uh, like you and, and me, uh, is a science fiction writer. I'm a fan. And uh, he let out the word, I can't remember exactly how, maybe it was through uh, an email blast or on a website, that uh, Zero Books was looking to expand into uh, fictional works that had to do with epistemology. And, you know, I've always been very interested in epistemology in fiction. Uh, I even I wrote a, an essay once a long time ago for the New York Review of Science Fiction about epistemological fiction, and uh, when Doug put out this word, I had, as a matter of fact, in my infamous trunk, you know about these trunks with unpublishable material. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. The novel Zen City. <laughs> Zen City, which is a piece of epistemological fiction. It's about how we know things, and especially about that moment between seeing a thing and knowing what it is, that wonderful moment, that pregnant moment. That's, that's really the, the place of origin of, of Zen City. So I sent him the book, and he said yes. Always a, an amazing and unexpected thing for a writer to hear. Absolutely. Well, it's amazing to hear anyone pulling, putting out a call for, for fiction books about epistemology. <laughs> it was very lucky. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if you know, of, uh, there was a, a monologous, how do you say that word? A monologue deliverer named Shelley Berman in the 1950s, and he used to make fun of the University of Chicago by holding up a glass of water and, and saying, this is a glass of water. But is this a glass of water? And if it is a glass of water, why is it a glass of water? The audience would howl, but there you have it. That's epistemology. Where's your, where's your head at right now? Is it working on uh, another short story or a book, or is it on uh, your next performance? Well, right now, I'm, as I... I mentioned to you earlier, I'm, I'm up to my elbows in clay and plaster. I'm making masks. I, I want to do, I want to explore mask work some more. And there's some people uh, in theater people around Santa Rosa where I live who are interested in doing it with me. So I'm excited to get started in, in that. As to writing, my next project, I think, uh, I, and performance will we'll have to do with uh, the Dibbuk the Legend of the Diva, written first in Russian and then in Yiddish by um, a guy named Ansky, though I think that's really a made-up name. 
when I was little, uh, I, I, I grew up among uh, Yiddish-speaking immigrants and absorbed enough to be able to uh, piece my way through the Dybbuk anyway in Yiddish. And uh, I think uh, it'll be an exciting piece. Wow, fantastic. Well, something to look forward to. Thank you so much, Elliot, for, for speaking to me. Oh, it's been really great. And especially since you're a writer, too. And so you know exactly where the points I'm making go. Yeah, I always enjoy so much hearing about other people's process. And and just, you know, it's just so much fun to discuss, you know, a wonderful story that you've clearly put so much into. Well, thanks, Rob. It's been a great pleasure. I've been speaking with Elliot Fintichel, author of Zen City, out this year from Zero Books. So I encourage everyone to get their own copy of it. I am Rob Wolf, your host for this New Books and Science Fiction podcast. Podcast logo is designed by Michael Thibodeau. Our music is by Michael Aaron. And the editor of the entire New Books Network, which has lots of podcasts out there, is Marshall Poe. If you haven't yet, check out my books, The Alternate Universe and The Escape. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. You can follow the podcast at New Books Sci-Fi. And we also have a Facebook page. And follow us also on iTunes and leave a review. That would be great if you did that. It helps other people find the podcast. So thank you very much for listening.